take your Bible, turn to John chapter 13. This is God's Word. It's true, reliable, dependable. For God is true and reliable and dependable. Hear Him speak today. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But it's completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master." nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would give life and light to your word. May you speak, and may we hear. Give us understanding and illumination, and we know this comes through your spirit working in us. I pray that he would be active that we might believe and be transformed. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nikki and I have a game that we play around the house. And when I say game, I mean more of a war, really. It's, uh, it's kind of like, a, I would say, passive Cold War more than anything. It involves the toothpaste. You see, Nikki and I have a game. This is actually the first time we've ever talked about this. I did not warn her this would be coming because we've never actually discussed our running Cold War in our marriage. And the running Cold War is this. We both refuse to be the person who admits there is not enough toothpaste in the tube and the need to replace it. It will not happen. It cannot happen. It must not happen. It must be her, not me, that admits defeat. We've been doing this now for 13 years, fighting over the toothpaste very quietly, behind the scenes, and you can tell by the laughter, it's a good thing. The problem becomes is that Nikki is really good at this. In fact, I suspect she cheats. I suspect she has toothpaste hidden away. And the problem is that I'm not that good at it. So I walk into the bathroom and I see the tube of toothpaste and it glares at me. And I go in to wash my face or to wash my hands or whatever. And I see the toothpaste and I know... I'm in trouble. And it's funny, the more that you have to go into the bathroom, the closer that it gets, the closer and closer I come to admitting defeat. And like Edgar Allan Poe's story, the toothpaste on the counter taunts me every step of the way. We're going to have a similar moment in the story today, although it's not toothpaste and it's not a cold war. It's actually unbearable awkwardness. In fact, I thought, I spent probably two hours trying to think of a good introduction that would set the awkward tone. And then I realized there's really nothing I can do with so many little ears in the room that you would not get in the car and all of the parents would hate me forever. (laughs) How do I explain this in the car? Well, okay, my fault. We're going to see a similar type of moment with an object sitting in the corner and just kind of glaring at people and the awkwardness only increasing and increasing and increasing and increasing. And you have to think everybody's sweating by the time it's done. But to get there, you have to back up just a touch where we are in the book of John. We are at the end, really. It's crazy. The book continues for many chapters, but we're at the end of the story. John has been preaching a sermon. He's been telling us the story of Jesus, and the whole story has been pointing to one Passover week. The week when human history is altered forever. The week where death is defeated, where life is declared, where sins are forgiven. The week. And it starts here. Chapter 12, we've seen the triumphal entry. We've seen him come in. We know that he's cleansed the temple. But John starts his sermon here with verse 1. Now the feast of the Passover was here. It's time. And the content of his sermon is reinforced again. Jesus knew that his hour had come. It was time for Jesus to work. And this work was done in obedience to his Father, but it's done out of love. 
And I love this this tender one-verse sermon, this introduction to the rest of the book. Jesus knew his hour had come, and he loved his own to the end. This is the end. Chapter 13 starts with the Passover, and the rest of the book continues on. This is Thursday night. His execution is imminent. And you think about what's happening in the world around as the disciples have gathered in this room to celebrate the Passover. You think about the forces that are swirling around in Jerusalem. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead and the Sadducees hate him for it. He's had the triumphal entry where he's crowned king and the Pharisees hate him for it. Remember, that's when they say, oh yeah, by the way, he's got to die now. Like now. We're not letting him live any longer. He's dead by the end of the week. After he's come into the town and the crowd has crowned him king, we know from the other books he's cleansed the temple and he's made them all angry because he's called them on their sin. They're beginning to sour toward him. They do not like him as much. And here we're actually going to see Judas has soured towards him. You remember just a couple of days prior, they're eating a meal and ointment is poured on his feet. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And Judas gets grumpy because he wanted to steal some of the money. All of the world outside of this room hates the man inside it. All of the powers around hate the man inside it, King Jesus. And John introducing his sermon, having explained how the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the crowd and even one of his own disciples, they all hate him. What is Jesus filled with to the end? Love for his people. Love for his people in the world. Love for his people all over the world. Love for his people to the very end. And this is going to display it. So they gather together to celebrate Passover. The meal that showcases the lamb that was slain in order to pay for the sins of the people. It's been pointing to Jesus from the very first day that it was instituted. Every Jewish Passover had been like a flashing neon sign. Oh, by the way, there's a real lamb coming. God's going to provide a lamb. He's not going to be the family pet. He's going to be his own son. And they've gathered together in the room, and we know from Luke 22, these men are just brilliant the disciples, as they walk into the room, they're bickering. They're fighting like, you know, if you grew up in a family with multiple siblings, you know that kind of bickering. They're they're doing that. We even know what they're bickering about, like brothers. Because we know this culture, the table that they're eating at is a large U-shaped table. And their culture in which they're eating with this large U-shaped table is very fixed socially. It's like if you grew up in the deep south and you walked into a room full of older folks as a kid and you're like, yeah, what do you want? 
Like, yeah, very fixed socially. You have to say, yes, ma'am, you know, no, sir. You have to use your manners in the Deep South. It's a very fixed, rigid social structure where the person who was the most important sat in the middle of the middle of the U, and the person who was next most important sat on his right, and then the third place on his left, and then fourth on that right, and then fifth on that side, and then you went around the sides of the table, and there was a very rigid pecking order to the table. You could tell by your name tag, so to speak, how important you were. If you've ever been to a truly southern wedding, you can know how important you are to the bride and groom by which table you're seated at. Not all weddings are that way, just the deep, deep, deep south ones. Been in some of those. And so the disciples are arguing as they're coming into the room, as they're trying to reestablish the pecking order. And boys have been known to do this periodically, try to punch the guy in the mouth above him to try to take his spot, to try to figure out, can I move up the ladder? I don't want to be number 13. Not today. Maybe number nine. I'll take a run at it. And so the guys are fighting over who gets what seat. And like true siblings, they finally arrive at some sort of kind of balance and eventually lounge around the table. And you would have lounged with your elbow near the table and your feet away. And you would have known exactly how successful you were at establishing your social rank. And the big thing would have been for the guy who the poor sucker at the end of the table because there was one looming object in the room. Not a tube of toothpaste. Not an Edgar Allan Poe, you know, telltale heart beating beneath the floorboards. A basin and a towel. Because in, in this culture, a basin and a towel in this setting would have been the singularly most demeaning thing in the room. And it, again, makes a bit of sense. If you live in a culture where it's very dry and very dusty, with lots of animals that poop in the roads with no plumbing and no pavement and such, and you walk in sandals all of the time, what will be nasty about you? Everything beneath the knee. Anything the dust can get will be revolting. It's gross, and it gets its own kind of smell. I went to a place with similar type of conditions. Uh, I would say at this point now, it's probably been, I've been here 11 years ago. I still have a box in my office that has one article from Peru. I can open it and give you that smell anytime you want. It's so strong, you cannot get rid of it. And so the person that was the lowest in the house, the lowest in the room, the lowest of the low would have the job of, you don't want to do this clothes because it's nasty. So you stand up and you take your clothes off. You strip down to your underwear. Yeah, this is good already. You wrap a towel around your waist, you take the basin, and then you begin to wash feet. Now, normally, this would be the type of task that you would have slaves do if you had them. If you didn't have slaves, then you'd have your servants do it. And if you didn't have servants, you'd probably foist this upon your children because no self-respecting adult would ever consider doing this. This would be one of those things like, I had children so that I wouldn't have to do this kind of activity. And so as the disciples bicker and argue around the table, who's most important? The poor sucker who gets seated at number 13. They're like, it's your job today. It's not mine. And in the midst of their argument, Christ does something genuinely shocking. 
He stands up from his place at the table. And you have to imagine, the second that he stands up, the guys next to him are like, no, this is going to be really interesting. And he walks around toward the basin, and he takes his tunic off. And that's probably the point in the room where everybody stopped talking. That moment where the shame is so thick, you can feel it. The embarrassment is like it's tangible. You, you want to like consider actually hiding because it's so miserable. Oh no, the one guy that shouldn't be doing it has started taking his robe off. And I love, none of the disciples are like clever enough to go, no, 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 I got it, I got it. You sit down, I'll handle it, it'll be okay, I got it. None, none of them jump to it. And if you've been around enough trips around the sun, you know there's two types of awkward experiences. There are those types of awkward experiences that the more that it happens, the less painful it is. You know, as a a teenager asking somebody to a dance and being turned down. It's terrible the first time. It gets better. You get used to it. (laughs) I know all about that. (laughs) But then there's a second category, which is far, far worse. It's those moments of awkwardness that the longer it goes, the worse it gets. And Jesus takes his robe off and it's, you know, silence descends. And shame settles in and uncomfortability and awkwardness takes over and it only gets worse as he wraps the towel, he picks up the basin and he starts washing feet. And if you have ever participated in anything of the sort, washing feet is not a simple and quick process. You don't just kind of like, oh, here's a little splash because you can't spill it on the floor. It's terribly intimate because it's your hands in between toes. And on heels and calluses. And gently trying to coax the dust and the grime and the filth off of feet of men. (laughs) And as they're seated around the table, Jesus starts at one end. And one. And two. And three. And it just gets worse. And four. And five, and I I love it finally gets to Peter when the room kind of breaks. He can't handle it anymore. And we've talked about translations do their best to try to capture what's going on. This is virtually uncapturable. They do their best. But it's so strong what he does. Verse 6. Jesus finally makes it to Simon. And Simon, this is a clue as to how uncomfortable the activity is. Lord, do you wash my feet? Really? He's been washing all the guys next to you. What do you think he's going to do? Like he's going to spill it in your lap? Like what do you think? He's, of course he's going to wash your feet. Jesus' answer though is intriguing. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I don't clean you, you don't belong to me. These are the answers that we on this side of the New Testament look at and go, well, this is so obvious. (laughs) If you do not have your sins forgiven, if you do not receive the humiliation of Christ, if you do not receive the work that Jesus offers, you don't get him. 
You don't get him in this life and you don't get him in the life to come. There are only two categories of people, those that know Christ and those that do not. And Peter classically aligns himself with those that do not. Brilliant man. He says, what I'm doing, you don't understand now. You will later. Trust me. It'll be fine, Peter. You'll get it. So verse 8, Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. Yikes. This is, it, it, this is a, no, never to the end of eternity will you ever touch my feet. That's actually more of what he says. If they could put it in all caps and actually have it start screaming when you turn to the page, that would be a more appropriate translation of what he does. It, it is a virtual like, no, it's not going to happen. You will not touch my feet. Peter, the classic pendulum, swinging from one side to the other, wrecks himself yet again. You're never going to wash my feet. And this is where Jesus so clearly, if, if I don't wash you, you're not going to be part of me. If you do not have my cleansing, if you do not have my salvation, you do not get me. You see, this is the first point in the text we're going to look at. Christ's humiliation is necessary for our salvation. You see, what Peter is rejecting here, what, what Peter is pushing back against is not ultimately having his feet cleansed. That's okay. That's normal. That needs to happen. If you have feet that smell like animal mess, you really don't want that anywhere near the table. I mean, we have a tough enough time if somebody goes to the bathroom and doesn't wash their hands and comes back to the table. Much less if you have worse stuff on your feet. What, what Peter is objecting to is Jesus doing it. He's objecting to Christ coming low and making himself the form of a servant. He's rejecting this humiliation of Jesus, saying, look, I, I'm not okay with you stepping this low. You can step so low, but not that low. I won't take it like that. You can't be that low to me. And Jesus' answer is a beautiful one. He, in essence, says, look, if you won't let me step this low, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? I'm not going to be in a, 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 you know, a, a towel around my waist. I'm going to be naked. And instead of cleansing you with your feet with water, I'm going to be cleansing you on the cross. You think this is humiliating? What, what do you think is coming? If you're rejecting me this low, what are you going to do with that low? You see, Peter is actually, in essence, he's trying to come to Christ on Peter's own terms and not on Christ's terms. He's not listening to what Jesus says. He's not receiving what Jesus is doing. He's saying, well, I'm going to do it my own way. And realistically, none of us in here have had, well, I hope not, have had your feet washed by Jesus in the flesh. But we all have that temptation, do we not, to say, well, I'm going to come to Christ on my own terms. I'm going to keep these pet sins. I mean, they're not that big, certainly not compared to my neighbor. I mean, they're a wreck. Have you seen them? That's a sin, too, just for the record. <laughs> Peter is so beautifully illustrating foot in mouth, exactly what we all do all the time. 
that we need to be confessing, that we need to be laboring to get rid of, that we might find freedom in Christ, in His terms of the deal, not mine. That when salvation is offered freely, as it is, come, taste and see the Lord is good, come, receive salvation. That we say, okay, and not like, no, that's not my terms for the deal. doesn't stop, though. One of the commentators, I thought, had probably the best illustration that I've ever seen. Peter is, he's like, the, the term was, he's like a farm boy, farm boy carrying a bucket of milk that's far too large for him. And each step, it sloshes out a different side. So first he comes to Jesus and says, look, I'm not going to take your humiliation on this setting. You're not going to come so low for me. You will never wash my feet. So Jesus said, look, if I don't wash you, you don't, you don't belong to me. <laughs> Peter, I, I love this guy. Fine, wash all of me. I'm not sure that's a better solution. Wash my head, wash my hands, wash all of me, take, take all of me. And Jesus here explains what does a Christian look like? What do, what do people who belong to him look like? Well, they don't need to be washed all over because they're already clean. He's actually explaining the consequences of the cross. His humiliation is necessary. You must receive him, but it's also effective. It does something. This is like profoundly earth-shattering right here, what Jesus says to him. Look, if you belong to me, if you have my work, if, if you have my redemption, if you have Christ, you're already clean. You're not the same person you were before. You're not the person you were before you came to know Jesus. Your insides have been changed. You're made new. You're righteous. You're holy. Now, are you perfect? No. You still need feet cleaned. But you are righteous. And you are holy. You are made new. You have been genuinely transformed. We see this in verse 10. The one who's bathed does not need to wash. Look, he's already been cleaned. He needs to wash his feet. So he can be completely clean. But not everybody is this way. And this is where, you, again, just mind-blowing how lowly the Lord has come. He's washing Judas's feet. A man who's about to sell him for pocket change. And he's cleansing his feet. He's humiliating himself before one who will betray him. My goodness, this is a lowly position for our Savior. And after this interchange, he finishes washing all of their feet. You've got to think, Peter probably kind of realized, I need to stop talking now. One of those few times we get in the scripture, like, I should stop talking now. And he kind of buttons his lips. And then everybody else sits there. They don't want to say anything. And Jesus finishes. And he puts his clothes back on again. Probably a very uncomfortable process. And he sits down in front of them. And he asks a question. And this is just magnificent. Do you understand what I have done to you? No. <laughs> no. No, I, no, I don't. 
No, I don't get it at all. I mean, they know that he humiliated himself. They understand that. They understand that there's one person filled in the room with shame, and it's Jesus. And because his shame is so big, everybody else's shame is big, big, big. And so what does he say? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, for so I am here. I am divinity. (laughs) You're right to feel embarrassed. Divinity, just step low and wash your feet. You're absolutely right. I am the Messiah. So now in light of that, if the very God who spoke the stars into existence can step low and wash your feet, how dare you do anything less to your neighbor? If God himself will come that low, how dare you do anything less for his people? Fourteen. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, if I being very God have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Stop arguing about greatness. Stop bickering about who's better. Stop trying to fight to get the good seat in the house. And think of others more highly than yourself. You think of yourself more lowly. If God is willing to do it, you should too. Truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, 16. Jesus is obviously the master here. You're not better than he is if he's willing to do it so should you. Very quickly, very quickly, so we're not late for communion. What, what do we do with a passage like this? First, we recognize Christ's humiliation. It, it is necessary. Therefore, we need to understand there's two categories of people in the world. Those that know him and those that don't. Those that know him will be filled by him, will be cleansed by him, will be nourished by him, will be sustained by him. Those that don't will be judged by him. They will be destroyed by him. And that is not a thing to delight in on the negative side, but rather invite everybody to the positive side. Secondly, we think about the fact that his humiliation, it it is effective, it's transformative. I've been made new. Guess what? Don't wallow in it anymore. You read stories of farmers that go out and like, you know, wash the pig. What's the first thing the pig does after you wash the pig? Run right back to the mud and roll right back in it. Maybe we might need to be a little bit less like pigs. Lastly, and this is maybe where I might be the most pointed. In fact, actually, I've been pointed enough to say, visitors, I love you, I'm glad you're here. This is probably not directed at you as much as directed to my people here. We as a church are growing, and that's a good thing. We're in desperate need of a second building, as you feel, as you sit on top of each other's laps. And that's a great thing. May it never be that we as a church ever think of ourselves as being too good for a specific job. 
Because honestly, in church history, what Jesus is kind of doing here is saying, look, there has been no lowlier job. And if I, the king of creation, the agent of creation, am willing to do the lowest job, why would you not? Realistically, as a session, we're we're talking about the Christian Education Committee. How do we restock our committees? How do we find teachers? How do we do the ministry of the church? Now, honestly, if it's because the session has picked up too much stuff, that's on us. That's never on you. If we said yes to too many things, that will always be our fault. But if we can't fill places because people think they're too good for the work, that is not on us. If our Savior would step inside time and space, step inside flesh, being under the law, stepping inside the sins of his people, in the wrath of God, under the grave for a time, how dare I think of myself more highly than that? Am I too good for suffering? Never. Am I too good to give my life to the church? Never he did. Am I better than my master? You see, the consequence of this is this. We're about to come to a table in which he's going to give you himself again. He's so good. He doesn't just do it once. He's every all the time. Here's me. Feed on me so that you may be nourished and strengthened and transformed to go live differently. That we too might find cleansing in Christ, not just for our whole self, but also for our feet. That we might be godly in personhood and godly in practice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, who rather than letting the wolves get the flock, he threw himself before them. Thank you that he died. Thank you that he paid your wrath in total. Thank you that he suffered so that we do not. Please give us the courage and the humility to follow the path He has trod first. That we might be holy. Beautiful mirrors reflecting Christ. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.